I'm going to talk tonight about the wonderful work of the Holy Spirit. What's not to like? The wonderful work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, I'm going to talk about that tonight and next week. And why I'm doing it is because I've been reading on the internet about a move of the Spirit in America, in Asprey, in Kentucky, and I'm jealous. And I feel that if there's even just a, a slight breeze of the Holy Spirit, I'm determined we won't miss it. And so like, I'm talking out tonight, as it were, hauling up the sails and saying, Holy Spirit, come on, bring it on. A visitation of the Holy Spirit would change everything. And I asked myself this question, and this is what I'm going to share with you tonight, and it's a slightly odd answer I've got to a very straightforward question. What would you most like the Holy Spirit to do? What would you most like? What do you think is most necessary? That's a slightly different question, I suppose. What do you think is most necessary for the Holy Spirit to do at this time? And I've got a, a surprising answer. I surprised myself with the answer to this. And maybe it's not a hypothetical question because you remember that Jesus stops and asks someone, what would you like me to do for you? And suppose he was said, say to you, what would you love the Holy Spirit to be doing in your life and at St. Michael's? Well, there are so many things I'm longing for the Holy Spirit to do, but the thing that I feel is most important right now is something I don't think I've spoken about before or preached about before. I think we need to hear the Spirit speak truth into our lives and into our land. That is my number one ask for the Spirit at the moment. Have you noticed, or has it just crept into your landscape and you haven't really logged it, how confusing things are becoming and how confused people are when they talk about things. Truth in particular. Now for me, an actual seminal moment, I can put a date to when I suddenly began to see that what people meant when they talked about truth was becoming unbelievably elastic. And the date is the 21st of January uh, 2017. And I feel I could almost say, um, he who shall not be named from a pulpit is going to be named, it's not Voldemort, it's Donald Trump, that um, he was the one who first alerted me to how this whole concept of truth was being taken for a ride. And the 21st of January was when his White House press secretary, Sean Spicer, stood up and held the first press briefing after the inauguration of the president. And he accused the media of deliberately underestimating the size of the crowd for President Trump's inaugural ceremony, which had been televised. And to anyone who watched it, you would have seen phalanxes of empty seats um, down the mall in Washington. But anyhow, his press secretary, Sean Spicer, said that it had the largest audience to ever witness an inauguration, period he said, both in person and around the globe. 
Now, that was a demonstrable falsehood. So it wasn't surprising that a few days later at another press conference, the press were all over it and said, you know, that's laughable. We could see the empty seats. It, it just clearly, you just made that stuff up. It's indefensible. And now the press secretary behind the rostrum was a lady called Kellyanne Conway. And when she was told it was patently untrue, she said, no. What I'm giving you are the alternative facts. The alternative facts. And that sort of entered into the vocabulary of conversation. And it didn't end with Donald Trump. Prince Harry, in his book Spare, which I have not read, uh, he clearly was very worried or concerned, or at least aware, that someone might fact check his book. And they have. And they found out there are all sorts of inaccuracies um, in his narrative. So he covers himself with this sentence. And, and I just, I've got nothing against Prince Harry, at least I'm not aware that I have, but it's just giving you an idea of a mindset which is out there. This is what he says. Whatever the cause, my memory is my memory. And it does what it does. Gathers and curates as it sees fit. And there's just as much truth in what I remember and how I remember it as there is in so-called objective facts. Work that one out. What he's saying is, I might be talking a load of baloney, but it's true for me because I think it's true. Now the scriptures, it's time we got to the scriptures, the scriptures and Jesus have a very different view of what truth is. Because there is such a thing as objective truth. Some things are either true or they're not true. It's not my truth or your truth, it's the truth. So for example, here is a key. It's my front door key. You can take it home with you if you like and try and use it to get into your house but unless Bannums have done something very, very wrong, it won't work in your house. That's the objective truth. It'll either fit the lock or it won't. And it doesn't matter how much you tell me that your truth is that it will fit because you sincerely believe it. You just be sincerely wrong. There is such a thing as truth and falsehood. And Here's the thing about God, and this is why this is important. Because left to our own imagination, our thoughts would make up some kind of picture and story and tell us what God is like, and we'd be completely wrong. How do I know that? Because in scripture, which is the truth, Isaiah says that God says to him, my thoughts are not your thoughts and neither are my ways your ways. We can only get to know God as he really is when God reveals himself to us. There is no other way. And in order to understand who God is and have insight into who he is, we need the Holy Spirit.
There is no shortcut. So I'm going to read a bit of scripture to you and then I'm going to explain it to us. And hopefully this will shed light on the whole area of a connection between the Holy Spirit and truth. The passage I'm going to read comes from an episode recorded in John's Gospel where John is talking to his disciples and John is very aware and actually so are the disciples that Jesus is shortly to leave them. He's going to be crucified. And this must have been a terrifying time for the disciples. They've always been able to shelter under Jesus and rely on him in times of trouble. But now he's going. And he's furnishing them with strength to survive. And um, I'm going to read you just a few verses which are not on the screen, but you'll, you'll recognize when we get to those. So in John chapter 15, verse 26, he says, When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. Then jumping to chapter 16, verse 7. Very truly, I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And when he comes, he'll prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment about sin because people don't believe in me about righteousness because I'm going to the father where you can see me no longer and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned I have much more to say to you more than you can now bear But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he'll guide you into all the truth. He won't speak on his own. He'll speak only what he hears, and he'll tell you what is yet to come. So we're going to focus on three things that the Holy Spirit will do, that Jesus said he would do. Three things that the world gets completely wrong. Now, the meaning of a word world here is very specific it really is people who haven't got a handle on God and people who God hasn't got a handle on the way of the world means the godless really and that's the majority of people this is the template of life without God and the first thing that the world gets completely wrong is about sin He, the Holy Spirit, says Jesus, will convict or convince the world about sin. Now, stepping back for a moment, it's just interesting to me that in this day and age, we're quite comfortable as fellow believers talking about that warm, fuzzy feeling that we associate with the presence of the Holy Spirit. And there is a biblical basis for that. It's not silly, and it's not to be sneered or sniffed at. You know, we are told that through the Holy Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. We feel secure in the presence of the Lord now. We're adopted into his family. We are his children. That is certainly one dimension of the work of the Spirit. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here, is it? He says when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict us or convince us of sin. What is that? What does it look like? What does it feel like? What's he talking about? Well, you see examples of it in scripture, and perhaps that's the best way of explaining what he's talking about. 
It's when people get cut to the quick, when they suddenly realize how unfit they are to be in the presence of the Lord. And it generally reduces them to a heap. So a very obvious example would be Simon Peter on his maiden tripping, uh, fishing trip. Do you remember that? That um, in Luke chapter 5, it's recorded that Jesus stood by the late, lake of Gennesaret. And there, I always picture Peter on the wings of Jesus' vision and his peripheral vision. Jesus is teaching a crowd and we're told that Peter is washing the nets. And you know, probably Peter's a bit cheesed off. He's worked all night and he's caught nothing. And he just has to get his kit ready for the next day. But when Jesus finished talking, he, he, he says to Simon Peter, put out for a catch. And you, you know the story, you know what happens. They, they go out fishing and obviously we think that Peter thinks to himself, this is idiotic. This guy's a carpenter from Nazareth. I fish for a living. He doesn't. You don't fish in the daytime here. But still, what can I do? The whole crowd's watching. He's asked me to do it. I'll do it. And then you know what happens. He puts down his nets and he catches an overwhelming amount of fish. And at that point, the penny drops with Simon Peter and he falls to his knees and he says, oh, depart from me, Lord, because I'm a sinful person. I, I, I don't deserve to be in the same boat as you at all. The gap between you and me is huge. Or think of, in the Old Testament, Isaiah. Maybe you know this, in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah was in the temple. And a bit like just you coming to St. Michael's tonight. You know, he, he just went to worship in the temple. But that particular day, something happened. He had a vision of the Lord, exalted, seated on a throne. And the way he puts it was that his robe filled the temple and he saw angels with six wings and uh, they were flying around and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I'm ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst the people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Most of the time, we're unaware of our true condition. It's very hard to spot just looking at one another how unfit for God's presence we are. In fact, most of us take a sort of secret delight until, until the Holy Spirit really convicts you the way most people look at the world, you can't help it, it's a sort of template, is you look around and you, most people say to themselves, well, 50% of my friends are definitely worse than me. I'm not so bad. Sure, it'll all be fine. Now, that might well be true. <laughs> I wouldn't like to say. But the thing is, all of us are miles away from God and his standards but you'd never know it unless the Holy Spirit showed you that and it's when the Holy Spirit shows you that you get convinced or convicted of sin and that's a hallmark of a move of the Spirit of God and when that happens it's amazing so I love to read about for example in the times of George Whitfield 
great preacher, uh, he got slung out of preaching in the Anglican churches. So he went to preaching in the fields instead. And the story is told that when he preached in the fields outside Bristol, when the coal miners came to listen to him and the Spirit of God came down and convicted them of sin, of their relationship with God, they started crying in repentance and Whitfield, as he was preaching, could see the tears making inroads in the cold dust of their face as they wept. It was the work of the Holy Spirit. Or more recently, and you can go online and Google this, if you Google Hebrides Revival, in 1949, a Scotsman called Duncan Campbell led um, a mission to the Hebrides. And for four or five years, um, revival happened. The Holy Spirit visited community after community. And um, here's, a, here's a short extract uh, of what's readily available online. I, I do suggest you could easily Google this and you can see some fascinating YouTube uh, clips of people reminiscing. One night a young deacon rose and began reading from Psalm 24. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that has clean hands and a pure heart, who hasn't lifted up his soul unto vanity or sworn deceitfully, he'll receive the blessing of the Lord. Closing his Bible, the young man addressed the minister and the other office bearers. And he said to them, it seems to me so much humbug to be waiting as we're waiting, to be praying as we're praying, when we ourselves aren't rightly related to God. And then he lifted up his hands towards heaven and he prayed, are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? And then he went to his knees and he fell into a trance. Don't ask me to explain the physical manifestations of this movement because I can't, says Duncan Campbell. But I know this, something happened in the barn at that moment and in that young deacon. And the power was loose that shook the heavens and an awareness of God grip those gathered together. Only the Holy Spirit can open our eyes and our hearts to the identity of Jesus, God's Son. And actually, holiness has been a feature of the Asprey revival or awakening or whatever you want to call it. There hasn't been any song and dance, really. There hasn't been any great personalities leading it, but a sense of a presence of God. So the first thing the Spirit could do would be to open our eyes and convict us of sin, convict us of the distance between us and God and how we need forgiving. Then the second thing we're told Jesus tells us that the Spirit will do is to convince or convict the world about righteousness. What does that mean? It means he will convince us and speak truth to us about our standing with God. Are we right with God? And one of the great deceptions of the enemy is to speak untruth both to believers and unbelievers. So to unbelievers, he speaks the untruth that goes like this. It'll all be fine in the end. It'll all end well. And to believers, he says, it's not going to end well for you. You're not good enough. What makes you think God could possibly love you? 
He kind of works a trick in both directions. It is hard to break to people that actually all will not end well unless they have a relationship with Jesus. When I was at theological college doing my training to be a vicar, because believe it or not, you do train. You don't just kind of fall out of bed a vicar. might look like you're not trained, but a lot of money and time effort has gone in to train you. And part of my training was to accompany a hospital chaplain. And there were three of us, uh, I think, who, who were doing this. And I was appalled by a story that he told us. He told us that during the previous week, uh, he'd been doing around and he'd been visiting someone who was incredibly gravely ill. Now I know that those situations are very tense and really difficult and everyone feels out of their depth and there's no easy way of doing anything. But as he recounted it to us, the person who was gravely ill said to him as the chaplain, I'm going on a long mystery journey. And the chaplain said, yes, you are. And I, as a young person being trained, I sort of thought, that is absolutely appalling. And Jesus never said, follow me and go on a long mystery journey. Absolutely not. We've got much better news than that to share with people. You can know for sure that God loves you. You can know for sure that God is a friend of yours. You can know for sure that you can stand before him as open as you like and he will love you to bits if you will approach him on the cross and ask for his forgiveness. And you can be sure of this, that you and I are going to be judged, that we are going to stand before the judgment seat of God. That is the truth. That is the truth. And there's no getting around it. There's a lovely picture which fleshes this out in the obscure book of Zechariah in the Old Testament. And I'll just read you the little episode where Joshua, the high priest, is being accused by the enemy, Satan. This is what Zechariah writes. Then he, that's God, showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, see, I've taken away your sin. I'll put fine garments on you. And then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. This is described in Ephesians chapter 6 as the breastplate of righteousness. We have nothing to hide before the living God. Nothing to hide at all. This morning I was telling the congregations that Jesus loves us this much, that he went to the cross for us. And he really does. And when he died for me, he knew all about me. You know, sometimes you might love someone, someone in your family or someone else, but you don't know the whole truth about them. And I'd love to think that the people that you love in your family, you love unconditionally, but you might well be shocked by some of the things that they do. God is not shocked by anything that you do. 
or I do. Because he knows exactly what we're like. The shortest version of the gospel I know was told to me by a South African bishop, Archbishop Bill Burnett, who said, Rupert, the gospel goes like this. We are skunks and God loves skunks. And that's the truth. And so when I say that God loves us that much, he does. You know, you, part of conviction of sin and the confession that follows it in God's presence is to say, Lord, and you need to know this about me. And I need you to set me free on a new way of life. As well as not hearing about this conviction business, we don't often hear about this repentance business. Repentance is one of those words, like the word sin, which is so dated, you sort of run a mile from it. But I'll tell you what my words for repentance are. Repentance sounds so old school. Here's what I think of when I see the word repent. Rupert, it's time to start a new life. That's what repentance means. It means there's a new life you can lead. Why wouldn't you want to? God will give you the power to live life his way. Righteousness means we can stand right before God. But there's only one way you can do it. And that way is to rely on Jesus having put you right. This point rather mingles with the next point I'm going to make. It kind of overlaps, which is when Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would put us right about judgment. You see, the world thinks there is no judgment. Somehow the world manages to kill itself or convince itself that you can do what you like, God doesn't know, and it'll all be well in the end. But scripture teaches us very unfashionably, no, that's not right. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And at that point, there'll only be one of two things that you can rely on. And I'm going to give you a heavy hint as to what I think would be the best thing to rely on. Scripture teaches us that we can rely on Jesus Christ. That he can become our advocate. I like that word. He can be our lawyer. You know, I, I remember reading in, in days gone by, I'm a little bit out of touch now, but in the legal circles, there used to be some lawyers who were absolutely stellar for getting people off. And so you turn to George Carmen if you needed a, a, an amazing lawyer, and he seemed to do the impossible. We have Jesus Christ who stands as our advocate, our defense lawyer. Let me read you exactly what John says in his first letter. My dear children, I write this to you so that you won't habitually sin. You won't get caught up in sin. But if anyone does, we have an advocate, a defense lawyer, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. And what that means is that when I stand before Jesus, as I will, as you will, I will confidently look to Jesus and say, you defend me. And Jesus, God's son, will say, Father, here's Rupert, I love him. I've paid his debts. I've settled the score. That'll be that. That's the righteousness that I claim. 
Or option two, foolish choice, you stand before the judgment seat of God and you try and win your case on your own. And you try and convince God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit that the way you live life is God-honouring, satisfying to them and you've got nothing to be ashamed of or apologise about. Good luck to you on that one. But that, it, that is the choice before us. And Jesus says the Holy Spirit can convict you in respect to the truth about righteousness and about judgment. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because he says that the ascension going to the Father is the proof of his righteousness. And I guess the resurrection for us is also the proof of his righteousness. But the apostles, uh, he just points them to this and says, you know, you'll see the truth claims because I'm going to do things that no one else has ever done. We need the Holy Spirit to impress this upon a whole generation, to speak truth in our land. But because I thought this was quite heavy, I thought I would mention something else that I'm looking forward to the Holy Spirit doing as well. And that is to give us peace and joy as we trust in Jesus. Irrespective of a hardship that we might be walking through and the tough times we endure, because Jesus says also in, in this block of teaching in chapter 16, verse 23, I've told you these things so that in me you might have peace. And in this world you will have trouble, but take heart because I've overcome the world. Holy Spirit, could you give us that peace? And I'm just going to read you out a lovely, a lovely, lovely piece, which is written by a man called Bishop Cyprian, in the third century. He's writing to his friends, his friend in particular, Donatus. This seems a cheerful world, Donatus, when I view it from this fair garden under the shadow of these vines. But if I climb some great mountain and looked out over the wide lands, you know very well what I would see. Brigands on the high road, pirates on the seas, in the amphitheatres, people murdered to please the applauding crowds. Under all roofs, misery and selfishness. Actually, it's really a bad world, Donatus. An incredibly bad world. Yet in the midst of it, I've found the quiet and holy people. They've discovered a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasures of this sinful life. They're despised and persecuted, but they cannot. They've overcome the world. These people, Donatus, are the Christians. And I am one of them. Good, isn't it? So I thought what we would do is we would wait upon the Lord for a, a few minutes. And I'm actually going to read Psalm 24. At the beginning of the psalm comes that passage I read about who can get close to God, who can ascend the hill of the Lord. And at the end of a psalm is an invitation for God to come close. It's put in a very picturesque way. Lift up your head at all your gates. Lift up your ancient doors so that the king of glory can come in. And when I read that, I'd love to picture the doors of St. Michael's being opened and we're just saying to the king of glory, come in, come in, come and do your business. So if you make yourself comfortable, 
and just ready to wait upon the Lord, I'm going to read this psalm. I'll pray beforehand though. Lord Jesus, thank you that you don't speak with a forked tongue. Thank you that you don't speak alternative facts. You speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd be able to minister truth to us. We wouldn't be afraid of hearing from you. But we would align ourselves to the truth you reveal. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd know you're invited to come and have your way amongst us. Amen. So here's Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. He founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who doesn't trust in idols or swear by false gods. They'll receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. So lift up your heads, you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, so that the King of glory can come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, so that the King of glory can come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. Holy Spirit, come. Come and speak to us. Thank you for reminding us, Lord Jesus, that you died for us, to set us free, to give us a new way of life. And we want to claim it, but we know we can't get onto that track until we confess our sins. So Lord, show us our shortcomings. Not that we might revel in them, but that we might lay them at your feet and ask you to set us free. Show us when we've been running away from your truth. Show us your love that we might feel secure enough to trust you. Holy Spirit, give us understanding. Come and light the fire in our hearts that would melt away the dross, that would capture us with your love and set us free from fear. Come and do business with us. And even as we do that, fill our hearts with praise. We say, come in, King of glory, come in. Come and claim your house. Come and claim your people. And fill us with joy in your presence. Thank you, Lord. Thank you.